on the one hand, they hear that the church has discontinued plural marriage, and they think, well, what's that supposed to mean? Am I supposed to abandon my family? But on the other hand, church leaders are teaching in private that men should support and take care of their wives. So every individual family kind of has to make its own choice, I think, what that means for them. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be discussing chapter 41 of Saints, So Long Submerged. And today we're joined by the editor of Saints Volume 2 and a general editor of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, Eric Smith. Welcome, Eric. It's great to be with you guys again. Well, Eric, we are glad to have you back to discuss uh, chapter 41 in Saints Volume 2. Let's jump right in with Jane Richards. Can you remind our listeners, who is Jane Richards and what is she doing in Washington, D.C.? So, Jane Snyder Richards is one of the most prominent Latter-day Saint women leaders of this time. She becomes a member of the Relief Society in Nauvoo in 1844. And in Utah, after Brigham Young permanently reestablishes the Relief Society, she becomes a Ward Relief Society president in Ogden, And in 1877, she becomes the first stake Relief Society president. She's appointed by Brigham Young. And she ends up serving as president of the Weber Stake Relief Society for close to 30 years. It's incredible when you compare it to the lengths of service today for people in those same colonies. I suspect there's a lot of stake Relief Society presidents listening saying, I'm so glad (laughs) that I don't have to do 30 years in this calling. And at the same time she was serving as the stake Relief Society president in Ogden, she was serving as first counselor to Zina Young in the General Relief Society presidency. And she had that calling for 13 years. So she has traveled out to Washington, D.C. with other Latter-day Saint women to participate in and to speak at the first ever conference of the National Council of Women. The Relief Society and the Young Women's Organization are two of the first 10 organizations to ever join the National Council of Women. There seems to be so many trips to Washington, D.C. in this volume. I had no idea how involved the saints were with politics and the United States government, meeting with presidents, things like that. But in this specific instance, it wasn't so much an advocacy from saints to have support, but they were joining this National Women's Council. In the book, we read that there was some suspicion from this National Women's Organization that Jane was only there to preach about polygamy. And so I imagine they were kind of a little bit nervous about what she was going to say. But during her visit, Jane made many friends. Um, They were actually impressed with her and the things that she was involved with and able to accomplish. So let's listen to what she invited them to do. Before returning home, she invited many of her new friends to visit Utah. If they wanted to get to know the Latter-day Saints, she said, the best thing to do was spend time among them. Eric, can you tell us, did national women's leaders visit Utah at this time and at other times? How did they find out about what the women in Utah were really living? So whether anyone responded to Jane's particular invitation at this time, I don't know. But you do have very strong friendships and associations that form between Latter-day Saint women and women that are in these national organizations. In the 1870s, you have Susan B. Anthony, who travels to Salt Lake and gives a number of lectures. And the national women's leaders and Latter-day Saint women leaders, they don't agree on everything. Some of the national women are not religious at all, but they have some ends in common. They want to give the vote to women. They want to see to women's economic advancement and educational advancement. 
So this moment when Latter-day Saint women join the National Council of Women is a very important moment. And for about 80 years, Latter-day Saint women continue to formally associate with the National Council of Women and the International Council of Women. And some Latter-day Saint women have very prominent roles. For example, Emmeline Wells holds several offices in the National Women's Suffrage Association, the National Council of Women, and the International Council of Women. And we've started to publish Emmeline's diaries on the Church Historians Press website, churchhistorianspress.org. And listeners to this podcast can go start to read her diaries and see what kind of a woman she was and why it was so important to her to join these national women's organizations. So in addition to these organizations that are changing the women's roles in society, we have the manifesto, which is pretty fresh on everyone's minds, changing the roles of men and women and how they deal with living in these plural families. Thought maybe we could listen to just a little quote here from the book, and then let's talk a little bit about what it was like for families who were living in plural marriage after the manifesto. Emily's father, Daniel Wells, passed away in March 1891. She and her daughters, Desi and Grace, returned to Salt Lake City for the funeral. And Heber agreed that she should move back to the city. He believed as long as he and Emily kept their marriage private, residing in separate houses and not being seen together in public, the family could live closer together. So the manifesto was issued in September 1890, and I'm sure most of the listeners remember what that is because we've talked about that in earlier episodes. But manifesto is another word for public statement, and the manifesto with capital M is the term we use to talk about Wilford Woodard's declaration given in 1890 that the church is no longer going to practice or teach plural marriage. So the issuing of the manifesto leads almost immediately to improved relationships between government leaders and church leaders and members of the church. Government leaders see that church leaders are serious about following federal laws, and so prosecutors are less inclined to start arresting and bringing to trial people that are practicing polygamy. You end up with complicated situations with men and women who used to practice plural marriage. Emily Grant is one of Heber Grant's plural wives, and she's been living in Colorado with their two daughters, Desi and Grace. And the reason she's been living in Colorado is she doesn't want to be arrested because if she's arrested, she can be forced to testify against her husband. And if she testifies that he's practicing plural marriage, she could be put in prison. But now that the manifesto has been issued, she decides to return to Salt Lake City, but to continue to live apart from her husband. And an interesting thing that happens here is that before this point, Heber's own daughters have been calling him Uncle Eli. And I thought this was really confusing. <laughs> I just can't imagine what these little kids, that would have been confusing to them. Right. Because not only calling him Uncle Eli, but they believed that he was their uncle. Right. So they use these code names, and they're not able to be open about their actual relationships because they're afraid that the kids might say something that would lead to their father being arrested. So not only do these young girls find out that Heber J. Grant, this man they've been calling Uncle Eli, is actually their father— but they find out that these friends that they have are actually their sisters from one of their father's other plural wives. And I don't want to spoil it too much, <laughs> but in the next chapter, we meet another woman, Lorena Larson, who's going through similar challenges. She also has been living on the underground in Colorado in a different town. And now that plural marriage has ended, she makes her way back to Utah, and her situation is a little different. 
she continues to have children with her husband Bent, and that puts her at odd with a lot of Latter-day Saint women in her own community. And so you have a lot of different situations. Some men continue to support their plural wives and families, and in fact, they continue to have children with their plural wives. Other men continue to support their families, but not to have children with their wives. And some men end up abandoning their families, and it's a period of a lot of confusion and heartbreak. And when I read these chapters the first time, my heart was just broken, especially for these women who had sacrificed so much for years and years. They've been living on the underground, away from their friends and families, and now plural marriage is over, and some of them wonder, why did I give up so much? Why did I sacrifice so much if plural marriage is going to end? And they each have to go to God in prayer and find their own answers about how to move forward in peace and how they're supposed to continue in their own individual family circumstances. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that describes these varying ways that families adapted to the end of plural marriage as it was beginning to be phased out with the manifesto. And then let's talk about Joseph F. Smith in particular and what his experiences were. The manifesto had given no direction for how saints in existing plural marriages should act. But Wilford Woodruff had privately counseled stake presidencies and general authorities on how to interpret its message. This manifesto only refers to future marriages and does not affect past conditions, he said. I did not could not and would not promise that you would desert your wives and children. This you cannot do in honor. A few people still chose to end their plural marriages, but most people sought to comply with the manifesto in less drastic ways. Some men continued as best they could to support their plural families, financially and emotionally, without living with them. Others continued to live with their families as if nothing had changed, even though doing so could subject them to prosecution and imprisonment. For his part, Joseph chose to continue caring for his family as always, believing that he was complying with the manifesto while still obeying the law forbidding cohabitation. So Joseph F. Smith is a member of the First Presidency, so that makes him a really big target for federal authorities when they're going around arresting Latter-day Saint men. At the same time, his plural marriages are public, whereas plural marriages of some other church leaders are not. So that makes him an even bigger target. So for seven years, he lives on what's called the underground. This is the idea that you're in hiding and you're never able to come out in public. Now, he still supports his family, but to do that, he has to sneak around at night and on weekends. After the manifesto, he petitions the President of the United States, Benjamin Harrison, for amnesty, which is basically a pardon. He wants to be pardoned from all of his previous violation of the federal anti-polygamy laws, and he actually receives this amnesty from President Harrison. And after that, we find Joseph F. Smith going to the tabernacle and giving a talk to a large congregation there. And he's so relieved and happy that for the first time in many years, he's able to come and visit with the saints. I loved learning about this from Joseph F. Smith this very emotional address that he gives at the tabernacle. And in fact, the title to this chapter comes from a letter that he wrote where he says, I have been so long submerged under the flood of surging events. If I get freedom in any form, I shall be like one raised from the dead or born again with new expectations to get and everything to learn anew. It's hard for me to understand what it must have been like for him to stand at the pulpit after seven years of living in hiding. 
Yeah. When I came back from my mission after two years, no, I hadn't been in hiding, but my younger brothers were grown up. I didn't recognize them. Neighbor boys came over to say hi. They were so tall and looked different. And that was only after two years. There would have been a lot of people that Joseph F. had largely forgotten about, and he had become a stranger to many of them. One of the unfortunate things here is that even though he has amnesty, he still can't live with his plural wives in public. He continues to have children with his plural wives and to support them and his children. And so for him, that means living in the first presidency's office during the week. And on weekends, he kind of sneaks out and lives with his wives and his families. So he and other Latter-day Saint men that continue to support their families are still at risk of arrest because all those same anti-polygamy laws are still on the books. So, Eric, you mentioned, you know, this target that he has on his back being a member of the First Presidency, then having these public plural marriages. And another thing is he's having children, like you mentioned. He's continuing to have children. And I thought this was interesting. One of his wives, her name's Sarah, she is going into labor and he just feels like that's where he needs to be. He goes and he spends that time with her as she's giving birth. And I thought this was interesting too. Then he takes care of the children. He spends the day with her. He puts up some shelves to store fruit and does some household chores. And then he goes back to his office. And I just think he is juggling so much. And we just don't know what that's like for them as they're all trying to kind of interpret the manifesto for their own individual situations. And it would just be so hard. In that address he gives in the tabernacle after not speaking to the saints for seven years, he says, we have to make the best of the circumstances in which we are placed. So he's taking a very practical kind of look at it. The circumstances he's in are not ideal by any means. And today we might find ourselves in circumstances that aren't ideal, not because we're living plural marriage, but you might find yourself in a family situation with a child or parent or even a spouse where you have very difficult situations. And because those people are your family, you can't leave them. You have to take care of them. And that creates long-term complex situations that can be very heartbreaking. And I guess the message for us today is we have to turn to the Lord in those individual situations and get that individual help and peace that we need. And going back to Emily Grant, we mentioned her before, but something that I really took away from the chapter that she said is the fact that I have stood all of her challenges. She said, the fact that I have stood it at all is remarkable to me, and I pray for strength to bear my future prospects. And so I think what I took away from that is that all of us can give ourselves a little more credit for the things that we're going through, the challenges that we have, and that we do have support from a very loving Heavenly Father. And some of these challenges that we have, we're asked to continue standing, you know, and we can have strength to bear it, whatever that means for us. It reminds me of the famous quote from Nephi in the Book of Mormon, the Lord will give no commandment unto the children of men, save he prepares a way for them to accomplish the thing he's commanded. And in this case, they were commanded to live a principle, and they did. And now they're doing the very best they can to live up to the obligations that that principle of plural marriage meant for them and the families that had been created. And it's complicated, but they're each trying to do their very best, knowing Heavenly Father will help. At one point in this chapter, we see Wilford Woodruff being questioned, and this is legal questioning. Eric, can you tell us a little bit more about this situation? What kinds of questions is he being asked, and how is he responding? So this is after the manifesto, and 
During the period before the manifesto, the federal government has been seizing church property because the church itself and church leaders are in violation of federal anti-polygamy laws. Well, now the manifesto has been issued and leaders of the church want to get this property back that's been seized. Something on the order of $400,000 worth of property has been taken away. So the church needs that back to support the members and other church programs. And surely that would be tens of millions of dollars in today's... uh, Enormous sums of money. Yeah. And my take on this is that government leaders want to make sure that President Woodruff and other church leaders are serious in having issued the manifesto. They want to make sure that this isn't a ruse or something pretend and that secretly they're going on and authorizing new plural marriages. It puts President Woodruff in a difficult situation. We might compare it to walking a tightrope because he needs to show the government that the church really is serious about stopping the practice and the teaching of plural marriage. But at the same time, you have lots of men who are continuing to support their plural wives and their plural families. So he doesn't want to come out and say that those men must stop supporting their families. So he has to show how serious the church is on the one hand, but on the other hand, allow room for individual men to continue to support their families. And this episode and others around the same time continue to create difficult situations for members of the church because on the one hand, they hear that the church has discontinued plural marriage and they think, well, what's that supposed to mean? Am I supposed to abandon my family? But on the other hand, church leaders are teaching in private that men should support and take care of their wives. So every individual family kind of has to make its own choice, I think, what that means for them. And when I read this chapter, I just had a lot of heartbreak for the men and women who had been so faithful in living plural marriage and had defended it. You have hundreds of men and a lot of women who had gone to prison for the practice of plural marriage. And now all of a sudden it's over and there's kind of retreat from it. And it's not a perfectly organized kind of retreat. And it takes a lot of years for the church to kind of unwind this situation. I appreciate that you use the example of a tightrope. As I read this chapter, I know critics then and now will go and parse these words, these responses that Wilford Woodruff was giving, looking for ulterior motives and trying to take those words and spin them in a way to show that he was being dishonest. When I read those words, like you said, I see a man who is trying so hard to satisfy the legal requirements and not abandon the principles of taking care of families. It just seems so difficult. He's almost in an impossible situation. It reminded me in a previous episode, Jed Woodworth told us about having as much charity toward those in the past as we want ourselves. And I just feel a great sense of charity toward President Woodruff as he tries to thread this needle to get through this really difficult situation, keep the Lord's work moving forward, and do it in a way that is pleasing to Heavenly Father. Yeah, what if he had come out and said, not only are we going to stop new plural marriages, but I'm asking men to abandon their plural wives and children. I don't know that today we would look very favorably upon that either. So he was in a very difficult situation. Absolutely. Let's listen to a little clip here that uses President Wilford Woodruff's words as he discusses this very difficult situation. Was it wiser to continue performing plural marriages regardless of the consequences or to live according to the nation's laws so that the saints could enjoy the blessings of the temple and stay out of prison? 
If we did not stop this practice, he said, all ordinances would be stopped throughout the land of Zion. Confusion would reign throughout Israel, and many men would be made prisoners. This trouble would have come upon the whole church, and we should have been compelled to stop the practice. But I want to say this, Wilford added, I should have let all the temples go out of our hands. I should have gone to prison myself and let every other man go there, had not the God of heaven commanded me to do what I did do. And when the hour came that I was commanded to do that, it was all clear to me. I went before the Lord, and I wrote what the Lord told me to write. As I was reading that the first time, it kind of reminded me of the conviction that Joseph Smith had. And he's just like, I knew it, I knew God knew it, and I could not deny it. It's this power that the prophets truly have to receive revelation for the world. And I just thought this was an incredible example that he's just like, I would have let all the temples go. I would have let all these things happen. But this was from God, and he knew it. So on a little bit of a lighter note, we also have John Woodso in this chapter, and I wonder, Eric, if you could just comment on John's story and his mother and the sacrifice that they were prepared to make to help John get an education. Listeners will remember that John's mother is named Anna, and she joins a church in Norway in about 1880. And at the time, she has these two young sons, John and Osborne, and she, by this point, has traveled to Utah and she's settled in Cache Valley up in Logan, and she's raising these two sons. And in chapter 41, her son John is now a young man of 19 years of age, and he's graduated from Brigham Young College in Logan. This is one of a number of academies that the church set up at this time, emphasizing education for Latter-day Saint youth. And John is unusually bright, and he has this opportunity to go study at Harvard. He's able to get donations from some friends, he takes a bank loan out to help pay for his tuition. Even the missionaries who converted his family help out. Mm -hmm. And his mother decides to put her house up for rent in Logan and move to Salt Lake so she can get that rent income. And at the same time in Salt Lake, she can find better work opportunities. It shows that Latter-day Saints from a very early point in our history were deeply committed to education. You have Brigham Young encouraging Latter-day Saint women to go back east for medical training. Some Latter-day Saint women become doctors, and a number are midwives. And it reminds me a lot of what President Hinckley used to teach. He used to talk a lot about the importance of getting as much education as we possibly can for whatever trade or whatever career we want to pursue, because church leaders know that education opens doors. It opens doors for our own careers and our ability to learn and provide for our families, but it also builds connections so that Latter-day Saints can participate in politics and other important pursuits with other people. And it truly added incredible value to the early saints and the early community in the Salt Lake area. It's inspiring. Now, do you know who John Witso ends up marrying? I don't remember. <laughs> so in the book, we have met Oh. Leah Dunford, Yes, she's the daughter of Susie Young, later Susie Young Gates, and Alma Dunford. And she actually attends a semester at Harvard. I remember. And that's where she and John meet. That's so cool. <laughs> John himself gets a degree from Harvard, but he gets a couple more degrees in Germany. Leah is very well educated, and they become very prominent in Utah. As John is a scientist, he actually later becomes a president of the University of Utah. And Leah is very influential in writing and publishing. And it's in part because of the 
education that they got. It's an amazing story, and to think that these Latter-day Saints who are sort of living out on the frontier are going back to attend this prestigious university is amazing. I wonder what John Woodsow would think if he knew today that presidents of the Harvard Business School have been members of our church, you know, <laughs> that we have been able to participate in such a way in that incredible educational institution, as well as build educational institutions here with all the wonderful universities and colleges that we have at our disposal in the Intermountain West. To people on the outside, it might seem counterintuitive in a way, people that might think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has unusual or odd teachings. They might think, well, if you get out there in Utah and the West, you don't want your people going back east to learn at Harvard and these other places because they're going to learn the truth and they're going to meet people that are going to dissuade them from their beliefs. But we see the opposite thing happening. As people like John Witso go back east, it strengthens their beliefs and they're able to use their education to benefit the church. It's such a great legacy that they've left for us to follow. Eric, thank you so much for joining us again. We appreciate everything that you've brought to this discussion. Thank you. And we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the Saints Podcast. As always, we'd encourage you to go to saints.churchofjesuschrist.org where you can read the topics that we've discussed today as well as the chapters. And please do email us your thoughts and comments about this and previous episodes at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks again for listening.